0: The following episode contains major plot points that may spoil movies for some viewers. A spoiler warning is now in effect.
1: So my friend really does sound like steve Oh, hey everybody, how's it going? This is another episode of the Abby Normal Podcast. I'm your host, Colin. And I'm Aliyah. Thank you for listening today. And today we have another fun episode that we're doing for Pride Month.
0: Yep, I believe this is actually being released on the last week of Pride Month, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, which, that's not
1: bad. I mean, we've done what, like, there's our third episode we've done for Pride Month?
0: Yeah, Yeah. it's been fun, and like I said, outside of June, we'll definitely do more reviews of movies that have the LGBTQ plus representation that it clearly should get recognized for. Yeah. So, I thought at the end of Pride, we should kick it off with, Or bring it to a close, I should say, with the most iconic of.
1: Are we doing another one before Pride Month, or is this like the last one?
0: Well, this is being released on Sunday, June 25th. Mm hmm. And it's essentially the last Sunday of Pride Month. Yeah. So we still have a couple days from this Sunday for Pride, but like if people are listening to this later on in the the year and it's no longer Pride Month at this point, at least they can still enjoy it. Yeah,
1: but... It, We're going to be
0: talking about Psycho, by the way. Yeah. Thank you for interrupting me.
1: whatever. <laughs> well, I didn't even say anything wrong. I didn't even interrupt you. What have well, you talking about?
0: I'm, I'm trying to build up to the fact that we are wrapping up Pride Month by okay. talking about Psycho, which is one of the most iconic of horror films, and it stars Anthony Perkins, who is a gay man himself.
1: Yep. And he's a very perky man, too. But, like, he actually... He did a few more of these psycho movies, like mm-hmm. like twenty plus years after the original.
0: Yeah, I believe there were two more sequels, and mm-hmm. then the remake with Vince Vaughn in the nineties.
1: Yes, which I want to see the second Psycho because I I heard there were so many good things about that.
0: We will do, but I also I was hoping we could make this into a remake debate, considering that this movie does have a remake. However, as of June twenty fourth. It is not available on any streaming services, so we cannot watch it at this time.
1: So, huh.
0: But when we do get a chance to watch it, we will definitely cover it on the podcast, and it will be a special remake debate.
1: To be honest, uh, that so. movie is pretty horrible, and especially Vince Vaughn it just has like a lot more of a creepier approach than Norman Bates' original uh, uh, character. But, I mean, I've watched a lot of horrible movies, so what one more won't hurt, right?
0: Plus... To my knowledge, the only person I know who actually enjoys the remake is Chelsea Rebecca from Dead Meat Podcast. Of course she does. Which is, I mean, it's fine. Everybody has their preferences. I'm, I'm just
1: kidding. To each his own. You yeah. Know?
0: Everybody has their preferences. I like a lot more remakes than I do original uh, films, but that's my opinion. So
1: Yeah. Well, you know, everyone has those, so that is okay. I'm not a big fan of remakes, depending on what it is and how they make it. But to be honest, I'm more of an original guy myself. Mm-hmm. So you know, original OG, and she likes remakes. So that's okay, though. I'm not going to hate.
0: So. Yep. Yeah. and then I also wanted to say I usually put trigger warnings or spoiler warnings in the beginning of these episodes. I did put issue with spoiler warning because, as always, we do cover the entire plot of the movie. Mm-hmm. But there are themes of mental health and mel- mental wellness. So. If those types of things do bother you, just forewarning, this is something that's going to be talked about quite a bit towards the end of the movie.
1: And if it doesn't bother you, then sit back and relax, relax and watch, well, not watch, listen to this episode.
0: Right. And then I also wanted to say, I know I said we don't have any Pride merch, but I have been drawing some concept ideas for Pride stuff. So I will be posting those also on our social medias sometime this week. Mm-hmm. But they are per- they are looking pretty nice. Yeah. Like they're coming along. Yeah, and I
1: like it. I wish yeah. we could have those shirts now.
0: Yeah, unfortunately we don't have it in the budget.
1: Yeah, but it's Mostly, okay.
0: we- mostly because there is no budget.
1: There's some. <laughs> Alright, well other than that, let's get into the movie.
0: Alright. Is there anything you want to talk about though before we do get into Psycho? No do you want to talk about the fact that there's going to be an arachnophobia remake coming up? No. I'll talk about it more later. Anyway.
1: <laughs> I hate that fucking movie, so please just read this.
0: Okay, so Psycho was released on September 8th of 1960, has a runtime of an hour and 49 minutes, and was directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Most pieces of... Reference points and fun facts I was looking up on IMDb call him Sir Alfred Hitchcock because that is technically his title. But
1: was he knighted?
0: He was knighted. Mm-hmm. I really don't care. <laughs> it's wow. Just, it, I know it's like a badge of honor for amongst the British Empire. Yes. But I'm an admirer of his work. I'm not an uber fan. I don't think he really needs the title. I'm just going to leave it with that. Anyway, Alfred, this was his first horror film.
1: Well, yeah, because he did a lot of like thrillers and stuff like that in Mm -hmm. his career. Yeah. And like suspenseful stuff. But so this would be his first ever horror film, which that is amazing. I mean, this man's been doing films since the 20s. And finally, like what, 30 years later, like no, I 40, 40 years later. Yep. He finally does his first horror film. And so that is nuts.
0: This movie is based off of a novel written by Robert Bloch. And I don't know if it's titled Psycho as well, but Alfred Hitchcock anonymously bought the rights to the novel for only $9,000. Really? He then bought up as many copies of the novels as he could so to keep the ending a secret. What? Yes.
1: It was that rich shit. Mm-hmm. Wow, not bad.
0: So the movie was made primarily because Alfred Hitchcock was tired with the big budget movies he had made in previous years and wanted to experiment with the more sporadic style of filmmaking. He mostly used crew members who were television veterans as well as actors and actresses of lesser known fame than those he usually hired, like Grace Kelly... Jimmy Stewart, Mm -hmm. Timmy Hendren, those types of actors. So in Virgo, like I mentioned, in 1958, it was hailed as a masterpiece, but was considered a bloated, over-budgeted misfire at the time of its release. So today it's considered a masterpiece, but wasn't back then. And while North by Northwest, which was released a year later, was considered a huge hit, it was a large production that was very time-consuming and expensive. Mm-hmm. So Hitchcock decided to scale things back for his next movie, and this is why the film was shot in black and white.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. And plus, it was probably a much more cheaper movie, especially when he had it really not in too many locations. It was kind of like an, almost in one location.
0: Yeah, I think... I don't really know much about the, the setting. I mean, I know where the movie essentially is supposed to take place, but as far as how it was produced, like I don't know the production that well like I do for Rear Window, which again is another conversation for another episode. Yeah. But it's a pretty good set. Like everything is really like there's not it's it's almost like there's so much going on, but not at all.
1: Yeah. In certain
0: settings. But we'll get to those in a bit. Hmm. Okay. And the house, the Bates House, mm-hmm. is the most iconic looking house in cinema. It's right up there with, like, Adam's family and other, like, Victorian-style housings. Yeah,
1: and, like, also Barnaby Collins, uh, well, Barnabas Collins' house in Dark Shadow. That's a very iconic... Barnaby? Yeah, I thought it was... Barnabas. Barnabas. Barnaby. (laughs) Close. It's a nickname.
0: So, as I said, it stars Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, Janet Leigh as Marion Crane, who Mm -hmm. is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yep,
1: and her father is Tony Curtis.
0: Yep. Vera Miles as Lila Crane. At least I believe it's pronounced Lila or Lila. Or Lila. Lila. Yeah. Yes. Just John Gavin that. as Sam Loomis. And it's not that type of Loomis movie where it's Halloween. Although we did cover that little connection in a previous episode. I feel like there's a
1: theory behind that.
0: There is a fan theory behind that. And like I said, we did cover that in a fan theory episode. So I go check like that, that out. I did
1: that. was actually fun.
0: I thought that was very interesting. And that's a really good connection. Again, go check it out in that Fan Theory episode.
1: Yeah, we made that like 10 years ago.
0: Martin Balsam as Inspector Milton Arbogast. We never heard his name being mentioned. He's only approached to as Arbogast. Mm -hmm. Never Milton. But anyway, the original trailers for this film ran for 6 minutes and 30 seconds long.
1: Original trailers?
0: Yeah, like... Trailers nowadays that run for like two and a half minutes long pretty mm-hmm. much explain the entire movie in that well, time. Well,
1: that much pretty much explains the whole entire movie. That's, right. That's long as a Bluey episode.
0: No, that's like, yeah, you're right. It's about as long as a Bluey episode. Yeah. Most Bluey episodes run somewhere between like Six, five, seven,
1: and eight minutes.
0: Yeah, six to eight minutes.
1: So the original Psycho was the basically original Bluey.
0: Right. Anyway... <laughs> When filming began, the cast members had to raise their right hands and promise not to divulge one word of the story to outside sources. Hitchcock also withheld the ending of the script from the cast until they shot the final scenes. I like when they do that. Yep. It's very Craven-esque, which I have in my notes here. Yeah. He even had a chair on the set labeled Mrs. Bates to further add to the illusion that there was another person. There was going to be a Mrs. Bates, yes. like an
1: actress who plays that. But really, right. there wasn't.
0: Right. Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee were allowed to improvise their roles. For example, Norman's habit of munching on candy corn was improvised by Anthony Perkins, and Janet Lee invented a complete backstory for Marion Crane, and she would incorporate things like what she was like in high school, and her favorite color, and things like that.
1: Also, she was very hot back then. She's a very beautiful actress, Janet Lee. Yeah.
0: But that kind of tactic kind of gives her character more depth, I think. Especially since we spent a good chunk of time in the beginning knowing Marion Crane. Mm Mm-hmm. And knowing what her plans are.
1: Mm -hmm. Pretty much.
0: Anthony Perkins and Janet Lee said they did not mind being stereotyped due to their participation in this movie. They stated in interviews that they would rather be stereotyped and be remembered forever for this classic movie than not be remembered at all. It's like that phrase like bad press is good press. Because Mm -hmm. even though you're being looked at in a very negative way, you're still getting some sort of Attention from the public. Yeah. Because of the drama and everything that's going on in your life.
1: I mean, that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Alfred Hitchcock's cameo came so early in the movie, was because he knew people would be looking out for him and he didn't want to divert their attention away from the plot. He is very well known for doing stuff like that, which I think is really good. Hmm. Yeah. So. To get into the plot, and there are a lot of fun facts in this movie that I will be highlighting throughout the plot, so bear with me if I have to, like, spend a good chunk of time going into the -the behind-the-scenes fun facts. You ready?
1: Okay.
0: Alright. So, during a rendezvous in a Phoenix hotel, Marion Crane and her boyfriend Sam Loomis discuss the struggles within their relationship. Marion returns to her job as a secretary where she is given $40,000 to make a deposit at the bank. Instead, she takes the money, packs a suitcase, and sets off to visit Sam in Fairville. This is in California. I I don't know why I'm stumbling with my words today. (laughs)
1: Later
0: that night, Marion pulls over and sleeps in her car and is woken up by a police officer the next day. The officer questions her as she begins to display anxious behavior but proceeds to let her go and follows her to the nearest car sales lot, where Marion trades her car in for a new one with different license plate. As the thunderstorm begins, Marion decides to stop at the Bates Motel just off the highway. The owner, Norman Bates, registers Marion under an alias and invites her to dine with him. When Norman goes up to the house, Marion overhears his mother, Norma Bates, yell at him about Marion's arrival. Norman returns with a light meal and apologizes for his mother's outbursts. The two discuss topics of Norman's taxidermy hobbies, his mother's ailing health, and the desire for escapism. Marion retires to her room, having decided to go back to Phoenix and return the money. While Marion showers, a shadowy figure stabs and kills her. Norman discovers Marion's body and vocally accuses his mother of killing Marion. He cleans up the motel room and puts Marion's body, along with her belongings, in the trunk of her car and dumps the body and car into the swamp marsh. Hmm. So chocolate syrup was used for the blood as it shows up better in black and white than red corn syrup. Huh. Yep.
1: Well, for the look of a yes, you know, that's why you kind of want to do that.
0: Yep, and the sound of Norma, and I'm using air quotes, but the sound of Norma stabbing Marion is actually the sound of a knife stabbing into cassava melon.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
0: Anything.
1: Cassava melon?
0: Yeah. Ah, interesting. When Norman first realizes there has been a murder, he shouts, Mother! Oh, God! God! Blood! Blood! Alfred Hitchcock had the bass frequencies removed from Anthony Perkins' voice to make him sound more like a frightened teenager. I get why, but I also don't get it. He's an adult man. Like, I I don't know. There's something about that I don't understand. In order to implicate viewers as fellow voyeurs, Alfred Hitchcock used a 50mm lens on his 35mm camera. This gives the closest approximation to the human vision. And the scenes where Norman is spying on Marion is this effect. It's when it's put in place. So he spies on her through a peephole yeah. into her hotel room, which is very creepy. Mm-hmm. But
1: I could see them doing it. It's
0: it's that effect that makes it look so much clearer through the peephole, which I think is interesting. Uh, for a shot looking up into the water stream of the shower head. Alfred Hitchcock had a six-foot-diameter showerhead made up and blocked the central jets so that the water spraying in a cone passed the camera lens without any water spraying directly at it. Hmm. Alfred Hitchcock was really happy with the score written by Bernard Herrmann. Hitchcock doubled the composer's salary to thirty-four thousand five hundred and one dollars He originally suggested that there should be no music during the shower scene, but was persuaded by his wife to try it. The shower scene score would go on to inspire other film composers like John Williams, who composed the theme for Jaws. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the opening scene, where we see Marion and Sam in the hotel room, Marion is wearing a white bra because Alfred Hitchcock wanted to show her as a more angelic and innocent figure. After she has taken the money, the following scene has her in a black bra because now she has done something wrong and bad. Yeah. So similarly, before she steals the money, she has a white purse. And after she has stolen the money, her purse is black. And that's the thing I like about movies in general when they use these little metaphors because color spectrums can mean a lot of things. Yeah. So in this instance where we have Marion dressed in more lighter clothes or even like white colored clothes to give her more of an innocent look and then to have her switch into more darker colors or even like black clothing when Mm. once she has committed the crime of taking the money and skipping town, then that's when her motives and ambitions become bad. And I like that. It's... It's the, it has the deepest meanings, but the most simplistic of symbolisms, and I like that.
1: That
0: is pretty cool. Yeah. A week later, Lila Crane, Marion's sister, arrives in Fairville to ask Sam if he's seen or heard from Marion and informs him about the theft, to which Sam explains that he hasn't seen her. As they, dis- as they discuss, Arbogast, a private investigator hired by Marion's employer, approaches them to also confirm Marion's whereabouts. Leaving all three of them puzzled by her disappearance. Arbogast drops by the Bates Motel to ask Norman if Marion happened to pass through. Norman's behavior, or his nervous behavior, and inconsistent answers rouse Arbogast's suspicions. Mm -hmm. He examines the guest register and discovers from Marion's handwriting that she had spent the night at the hotel or motel. There is a difference between the two, which I'll probably get into a little later in the episode, but. I always keep accidentally switching back from motel to hotel. It's just because it sounds better. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, gotcha. when Arbogast learns that Marion had spoken to Norman's mother, Arbogast asks to speak to her, but Norman refuses to allow it. Arbogast updates Sam and Lila about his search and promises to meet him or meet both of them within an hour at Sam's house. After he enters the Bates' home to search for Norman's mother, a shadowy figure emerges from the bedroom and stabs him to death. And it was him. Yep. The Bates house, though moved from its original location, still resides on Universal's lot. The motel has been replicated and is a regular stop on the Universal Studios tram tour. So if you ever want to go to Universal Studios, there it is. It's going to be there on the tour. <laughs>
1: Which, that's pretty cool. I want to check it out.
0: I've always wanted to go to Universal Studios. They had some of the most interesting horror attractions there.
1: I was there years ago. I went there twice, and it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed every minute of it.
0: When Sam and Lila don't hear back from Mm -hmm. Arbogast, Sam goes to the motel to look for him to no avail. He sees a figure in the house who he assumes is Norman's mother. Lila and Sam alert the local sheriff, who tells him Norman's mother died in a murder-suicide by poisoning 10 years earlier. Mm -hmm. The sheriff suggests Arbogast lied to Sam and Lila so he could pursue Marion and the money. Convinced that something happened to Arbogast, Lila and Sam drive to the motel. Sam distracts Norman in the office while Lila sneaks into the house. Suspicious, Norman becomes agitated and knocks Sam unconscious. As he goes to the house, Lila hides in the fruit cellar, where she discovers the mother's mummified body. She screams in horror, and Norman, wearing women's clothes and a wig, enters the cellar and tries to stab her. Sam appears and subdues him. At the police station, a psychiatrist explains that Norman killed his mother and her lover ten years earlier out of jealousy. Unable to bear the guilt, Norman mummified his mother's corpse and began treating it as if she was still alive. He recreated his mother as an alternate personality, as jealous and possessive, just as jealous and possessive towards Norman as he felt about his mother. Hmm. When Norman is attracted to women, the mother personality takes over. He had killed two other missing women before Marion and Arbogast. The psychiatrist concludes that mother has now submerged Norman's personality, Norman sits in a jail cell and hears his mother saying the murders were all of his doing.
1: Which that was actually like the best speech, especially she wasn't on stage on the set or anything, but she was she had her voice.
0: Yeah, so it's essentially Norman's thoughts spoken by his mother thinking that he's going to be able to walk out of here because he's just a little old lady and they nobody would think that she would hurt a fly.
1: Yeah, and that sort of thing, and that evil stare that he does after all that in the very end. Yep, oh my god, it was just that smile. I mean, I've seen smiles towards the end of like a lot of horror movies, and a lot of them creep me out, but that one was definitely still very unsettling.
0: So, according to IMDb's trivia and fun facts list about this movie, Alfred Hitchcock hated the last scene with the psychiatrist. Really? Yeah, the psychiatrist was Dr. Fred Richmond, played by Simon Oakland. He felt the scene was boring and the movie came to a grinding halt at that point. The scene has also been ripped to shreds by critics over the years as the worst scene in the movie and one of Hitchcock's worst scenes ever. Hitchcock and viewers felt the scene was unnecessary, overly obvious, and all too talky slowing down the action and the suspense of the rest of the movie. But there was strong pressure from the studios and the powers that be that funded and distributed the movie to relieve the pressure from earlier scenes and also to explain the action to less insightful audience members who might be confused by the big reveal at the end. So they decided to keep the scene. Mm. Which I do agree, but not for that particular reason. I do feel like the scene didn't really need a whole lot of explanation. But if you were going to explain Norman's psychosis, it didn't need to be that particular way. Because he's explaining to everybody who's in the room. This doctor is explaining to Marion's sister, her boyfriend, the police investigators, even the sheriff, about what is going on in Norman's head. And they all interject and make these really sort of homophobic comments about him being a transgender person. And they use the term transvestite, which is not really a good term to use, but the doctor is quick to correct them on that. But if we were to talk about it today, it can be argued that Norman was going through something called disassociative identity disorder, which is a coping mechanism that people who suffer from extreme trauma In their childhood or in their past Mm -hmm. to help them cope with things that trigger those trauma responses. And in this instance, because Norman was infatuated with his mother, he had no other desires for other women other than his mother. And because he acted out his rage towards his mother's relationship with her boyfriend, causing him to kill her... He now feels immense amount of guilt and extreme loneliness without her, which is why he creates this second identity of her. Mm -hmm. And now every time that he feels some sort of arousal or attraction towards other women, he doesn't know how to cope with that because he's never loved anybody outside of his own mother. So that's when the mother personality takes over And they bash Norman for having these thoughts and feelings and then act out on them in murderous rages towards those women. Pretty much. Yeah. And that's why, like I said, I don't think that that scene was necessary. I feel like, yeah, you could have ended it at the fruit seller scene where Sam apprehends Norman and that's it. Mm -hmm. Because that that in and of itself is just as terrifying But yeah, what did you think?
1: I mean, I've always loved the movie Psycho, so everything is just, the movie is perfect on itself. Like, I know maybe not had the, I don't know, the best success even back then when it first came out, but literally it's just an iconic movie. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, especially Tor I like the ending, you know, I like the ending when they're kind of like really interrogating him and just trying to figure out what is wrong with him.
0: Well, they don't show the actual interrogation no, or the don't. conversation. they don't. But
1: the whole thing that they talk about it, yes. The
0: doctor explains to the people in the room what he observed just from talking to Norman. Yeah, no, that's what
1: I—that's what I meant. Right. And she, and then her voice coming in to do that little speech inside of his head, and that was—I love that so much. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a great movie, and I definitely highly recommend for anyone to watch this uh, who likes this type of horror. Right. So yeah.
0: So after this movie's release, Alfred Hitchcock received an angry letter from the father of a girl who refused to have a bath after seeing Diabolique. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that movie, but it's like a French horror film. It was released in 1955. And now, at this point, this girl refuses to shower after seeing Psycho. Hitchcock sent a note back simply implying, send her to the dry cleaners. Like, Sh- dick. Shit.
1: Man, right? you know, Alfred did not care back then. Yeah, he made movies. He didn't care if anyone liked them or even hate them.
0: He gave zero shits about other people's opinions. Although Janet Lee was not bothered by the filming of the famous shower scene, though she did use the body double for that film mm-hmm. in that particular role, uh, seeing it on film profoundly moved her. And she later remarked that it made her realize how vulnerable a woman is in a shower. To the end of her life, she would always take baths instead of showers.
1: Wow, so Alfred Light, traumatizer. So
0: unlike that other girl who saw Diabolique, she didn't see that movie and opted to take baths.
1: I mean, I've never seen Diabolique either, but I mean, if I did, I probably would want to take a shower more, but yeah.
0: Yep. Janet Lee received threatening letters after this movie's release. Uh-oh. Detailing what these people would like to do to Marion Crane, and one was so grotesque she passed it on to the FBI. The culprits were discovered, and the FBI said she could only notify them again if she received any more letters. Huh. Yes. And that is where I am at with the end of my notes.
1: Huh. Well, that's intriguing.
0: Yeah, and it is sad too. Like when you are in a movie, and it's not just horror movies where actors and actresses get this sort of, you know, bad press. Or not, it's not really bad press, but there's just negative reactions from fans, where they receive death threats, and it's like
1: mm-hmm. that's not
0: okay. Like, we should... Like, these people are just doing their jobs.
1: I mean, why do we take the movie that serious? I mean, I know there are mov- people who are obsessed with movies and the characters in it, but you mm-hmm. don't have to take it too damn far. Yeah. To the point where you're trying to, like, threaten to kill someone's life because of a role they played. Right. I don't know. It's just, I just think it's just dumb.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But no, but uh, other than that, the, we did... Yeah, that was pretty good.
0: Yeah, I think this was a great way... To wrap up Pride Month, I think mm-hmm. this was really fun to cover, and this is this is not only one of the oldest movies I think we have covered so far, except if you count Frankenstein and.
1: Oh no, no! Uh, Frankenstein is like the oldest movie we've uh, we've done. Yeah. And also Dracula too.
0: Yes, we did do Dracula, mm-hmm. and I did want to point out one thing.
1: And didn't we do *Family* the opera, the original?
0: We did not. We covered *Family* the opera when we covered horror musicals. Ah. Yes. I
1: should have done the original too. That's a good one.
0: Yes. So We'll do it in the future. Maybe. But with that being said, I did want to point out one more thing. So I think I've said this before, but Demi Podcast for the Month of Pride is putting out their own Pride merch. The thing about their Pride merch that I think is really unique and interesting is that it highlights a lot of people who are part of the LGBTQ community who have worked in the horror industry. So like we talked about, James Whale directed Frankenstein. He directed The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein. He's also directed a couple of like independent horror films of his time. Don Mancini, the director of Child's Play, and a bunch of others that are just really great actors, directors, cinematographers... Those things are well appreciated and should be highly regarded.
1: Yeah, it's not only just the actors in front of the screen, but also the people behind, mm-hmm. the ones that really contribute to what they do onto this onto the screen. Mm-hmm. Whether it's in their in on, in the screen or in life, we should definitely appreciate for who they are and what they've accomplished. Yeah, and it doesn't matter what they what background they have.
0: Yeah, and like I said. We're definitely going to cover more movies like these in the future. I really, really, really want to do a deep dive on the Fear Street trilogy because mm-hmm. it's been my favorite trilogy series for a good while, and I've been wanting and meaning to talk about it on the podcast, but I also feel like it would be a really cool episode to have with a guest on, and I really want to find that right guest to just talk about that trilogy, too. You'll fun. okay
1: whoever that person is out there honey you'll find the right one yeah (laughs) but yeah no. other than that I think that concludes for our episode today yeah and thank you all for listening I hope you guys enjoyed this as much as we did
0: yeah and like I always say be sure to follow us on social media we're on Instagram and TikTok and be on the lookout for those digital drawings I'll be posting sometime soon I'm taking the Abby Normal Brain and incorporating Pride Colors into it. So I'm really excited to share those and just be on the lookout for those because those are going to be probably showing up a lot more in future possible merch. Mm-hmm. If we ever get there.
1: And we will. Yeah. It's, it's going to take a little bit, but don't worry. We, uh, if we just set up the right people and everything, we'll get those merch going. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Other than that, this has been an episode of the Abby Normal podcast. I'm your host, Colin.
0: And I'm Aaliyah.
1: Signing off saying, Mother Knows
0: Best. Not always, though. As always, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We are currently on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe, or a nice review for our podcast. It helps boost our show positively. You can also follow us on Instagram and now on TikTok.